Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. This show marks the continuation of a discussion that began two shows ago with a program devoted to Plato's NDE story from about 400 BCE. How did that NDE differ from those of today? What do the differences tell us about the notion of punishment for our sins after we die? Those questions were continued on last week's show with a review of the notions from two so-called books of the dead. The first from the Egyptians as early as 2500 BCE, and then a comparison of that with the Buddhist Tibetan Book of the Dead dating from about the 8th century. In that text, we find the spiritual psychology of a 49-day journey of the departed through a bardo generated entirely from the transitioning soul itself. Well, what do those realms have to say about punishment after death? So today, as we move into our time in the historical perspectives on punishment, I'm dedicating this program to the messages contained in distressing near-death experiences. And to do that, I'm drawing on materials from the woman I consider the expert in that field, Nancy Evans Bush. Do scary, distressing NDEs mean that evil exists on the other side? And if not, why do DNDEs happen so often? It's estimated that 20% of all NDEs are distressing, even frightening, because DNDEs are so often terrified, uh, terrifying through their experience, few are willing to share with others what they saw. One remarkably sympathetic DNDEer has been Nancy Evans Bush, President Emeritus of IONS and author of several books on DNDEs, including Dancing Past the Dark, The Buddha in Hell and Other Alarms, and Reckoning, Discoveries After a Traumatic Near-Death Experience, all available, by the way, through Amazon. As some of you may know, for several years, I served as editor of Vital Signs, a quarterly publication of IONS. In the fall 2009 issue, Nancy was interviewed by contributing editor Amy Stringer for Vital Signs in an article entitled, Reflections from Three Decades with Ions. The interview speaks about Nancy's own DNDE and how her chance job with early Ions led her to understanding, research, and the books that have brought comfort to countless others who have suffered through their own NDEs. That interview proved remarkably useful in informing DNDEers that there are answers for their fears. And so I would like to read a portion of Nancy's Vital Signs interview on our show today. And for the sake of clarity, I've incorporated Amy's questions into Nancy's remarks. Following that, you will hear an excerpt from an interview I did with Nancy on our show of May 16th, 2016. So here's a portion of her interview in Vital Signs. Nancy said, There was no field of near-death studies before 1975 when Raymond Moody gave NDEs a name. Even then, there was no actual field, only Moody and a bare handful of individuals doing their best to deal with thousands of people asking questions. 
I'd say the field itself began with ions in 1978. By 1978, there was such an explosion of questions about NDEs that it seemed like a good idea to get researchers and experiencers together with other interested people to share information. Moody invited all the researchers he knew to a weekend at his farm in Virginia. I think there were maybe a dozen people altogether, including physicians Bruce Grayson and Michael Sabom, uh, psychologist Kenneth Ring, and social workers John Audette and Sarah Kreutzinger. And out of that weekend came the Association for the Scientific Study of Near-Death Phenomena. In 1981, the organization moved to the University of Connecticut and was renamed the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IONS. A few months after IONS was incorporated in 1981, the board began looking for an office manager. And for some reason, I answered a tiny ad in the Hartford Current. I had never heard of a near-death experience, hadn't read the book, knew nothing about psychic anything, but I had management skills. It was in 20 years before this, as the result of giving birth, that I had my distressing near-death experience. It was not a radiant experience. It was an utterly terrifying experience of the void. I had never heard of anything like it. I didn't know anybody else in the world had ever had such an experience. That left me with a sense that I was walking around with secret knowledge too terrible to tell anybody. There was a group of circles. They were clicking, black to white, white to black. They weren't, I didn't think they were evil, but they were malicious. Maybe the way a sibling would be malicious when you're being really heartless to each other. There was no question they were authoritative. They knew stuff I did not know. I was the stranger there. They weren't. It never occurred to me that this was hell, and it never occurred to me that I was dead, only that this was what I would probably be like uh, when it was dead, when I was dead. I just knew that, that this was a place other than where I thought I'd been. I was told I did not exist. I had never existed. It had been a joke. My life was a joke. My baby's life was a joke. I had a 17-month-old daughter. She did not exist. My mother did not exist. Hills, trees, robins, earth did not exist. It was so utterly clear I was being told something true. It's hard to explain, well, what would have been the point of arguing? What they were saying was incontrovertibly true. I had no context for it. The Christianity I grew up with was a pretty amiable theology, congregational UCC, God is love, and Jesus loves the little children. My father and grandfather were ministers from a very liberal intellectual tradition. Oh, some people talked about hell, but we knew that God loves his people, and if you try to do the right thing, you'll be all right. When I woke up, my first conscious thought was, Calvin was right, predestination. There are sheep, and there are goats, and I must be a goat. Some people are just automatically on the outs with God. And then the reason that occurred to me was because it was so contrary to anything I thought I deserved. Most of the people who have written about unpleasant experiences talk about them as happening to people who were sin-ridden, guilt-ridden, hostile, God-denying, love-denying, suicidal, all of that. 
none of which applied to me. I was far from perfect, but for heaven's sake, I'd been saved twice at the Billy Graham Crusades. I had been born again and again. There was nothing in my background that could in any way help me explain this experience. I didn't even know where to look for an explanation. Six years after the experience, I was about to have a cup of tea with a friend when she said, here's a book we just got today. Take a look. I think the book was Carl Jung's Man and His Symbols. And I was flipping through it, and suddenly there on the left-hand side of a page was a large illustration of one of the figures from my experience. I got a feeling of just sheer horror, because my immediate thought was, my God, somebody else knows about this. I was so horrified that I simply threw the book and ran. It was not until several years later I discovered the circle was the yin-yang symbol, and this led to the question, how does a Chinese symbol get into the transformative experience of a New England Congregationalist who has had no contact with Taoism, New Age, or paranormal activity? The question would turn my life around. Within a few weeks at Ions, I began to realize that there was a name for that experience I'd had 20 years earlier and had been trying to bury ever since. That was uncomfortable because I knew beyond question that not all NDEs are glorious and not all experiencers lose their fear of death. And clearly nobody was going to want to hear that. But there were occasional clues in the letters coming into the office, little hints or even outright statements that other people knew about experiences like mine. Why don't you people tell the truth? Somebody had to figure out what to say to these people. And although I had no background to start with, well, I was there, and the letters kept coming in. As for how it affected my relationship with Ions, I think it's accurate to say that in some ways, it has kept me pretty much an outsider, even on the inside. More than a few people would prefer that my type of experience not be considered an NDE, and that this conversation would happen someplace else, if at all. In the face of so much genuinely wonderful talk about radiant NDEs, it's been hard always to have to say, excuse me, but that's not true for everyone. It's not universal. That doesn't always apply. Looking from the other point of view, I think it's been difficult for many people because of the very fact that my experience was negative. I suppose one satisfaction is that I didn't stop talking just because the topic was unwelcome. The need is so great, and I've been able to say so little, but every once in a while I've heard from someone that my work has helped. That's worth the struggle. And of course, because I didn't stop searching for answers to give to other people, eventually there came a kind of resolution of understanding of my own experience. Finally, getting beyond the literal interpretation and arriving at a deeper comprehension makes all the difference. And I keep hoping that some of my conviction is getting through, that we have to recognize that the universe is made up of darkness as well as light, so we'd better pay some attention to the implications of that. So there have certainly been some satisfactions. One frustration is that getting this has been such a long process of stumbling along. I was a junior high school English teacher when the NDE happened, not a psychologist, not a theologian, not a philosopher. I had absolutely no background in psychic anything, nothing useful in that sense. 
So it's been like following breadcrumbs through a very dense forest, piecing a trail together one little chip at a time. I've been just wild sometimes, wishing that more people from other disciplines who might have had some insight would speak up, would write an article for the journal, would say something. Probably my biggest continuing frustration is the general conviction that if a person has a horrifying NDE, they've done something to deserve it. There must be something about them. No researcher, to my knowledge, has analyzed moral character or previous behaviors to explain radiant NDEs, but an astonishing number of people seem quite sure that a scary NDE is a manifestation of deep-seated guilt, hostility, fear, hatred of God, rigidity, lack of love, meanness, and so on. No wonder it's been hard for experiencers to come forward to share their difficult NDEs. Probably the one question I dislike the most is, do you believe these NDEs? Are they really true? Do you really believe near-death experiences? It's such an annoying little mosquito of a question because it indicates just such a lack of thought. They are experiences. You can't ask people, is your experience true? Any more than you could ask someone with an abscessed tooth if their experience of pain is true. You're having the experience. Of course it's true as a genuine experience. Now, what does it mean? That's something different. Do I believe these experiences? Of course I believe them. Do I believe they are literally true? That's a different question with a far more complex answer. I wish more people would look at the NDE and ask, and so? The horizon is so much wider than what we've been looking at. There's entirely too much stopping at the literal level, at the sensational level, thinking that the experience itself is all there is or that it's enough. I wish people would wonder more about what these experiences point to, both the beautiful ones and the difficult ones. Not just that everything is wonderful and there's life after death. What does it mean that there are both bliss and the abyss? Why are why all these continuing visual images across millennia? What are all these amazing spiritual experiences trying to tell us about being, about ourselves, about the nature of the universe and the way it works? What are we supposed to do with the information? What will it take to make us change? Do experiencers have the answers to life's persistent questions? I think some do. But I suspect that for the most part, those people go quietly in the world and make few speeches. The idea that experiencers come back with answers is part of the myth of the NDE, the myth that it's all wonderful. It, it seems to me that many experiencers have a glimpse of an answer, but don't know how to interpret it or don't know how to work at how to live it. Too many folks get stuck in self-congratulations for their feeling of being special, for having evolved or they get sidetracked with psychic abilities or having had a power, powerhouse personal experience. Some think they have the ultimate truth and can't accept that there are also very different perspectives. It's bound to be more pleasurable to marvel at a glorious NDE than to dig into one's own psychodynamics to clean house afterwards or to explore the history and discipline surrounding these experiences that the religious traditions and Buddhism have found helpful. Some good words are there, love, learning, service, but too often actions don't follow. 
Many people don't want the information. They want only the experience, or they don't see how knowing about something like this can be helpful. And a good number of experiencers suffer deeply. It's complex, this business of revelation and communication. In fact, the messages have been with us since well before Deuteronomy, and in the Gospel, and the Quran, and the Sutras, and in all the religious and mystical traditions. And each time there's a breakthrough, the convinced have to struggle with their egos, and there'll be a group of people who know that, quote, this news can change the world, unquote. And of course, they're right, but the work of self-discovery and self-discipline is terribly difficult. So inevitably, the great Shazam doesn't happen, and the world goes on unrescued. The deepest enigma for human beings remains learning to live with what we say we believe. That's the hard part. The most obvious shift in my 28-year perspective on NDEs is that the near-death experience is now so well-known that it has become the stock visual image for dying. 30 years ago, when somebody in a movie or soap opera died, you'd see the hand drop or the eyes close. Now the room fills with light, the camera pulls up, and there's the actor's body and misty figures coming in, and everyone knows what's happening. It's nice to know that we've helped make NDE so much a part of the culture. On the other hand, this bland acceptance leads to a trivializing of the experience. The awe is missing, and the wonder. It's like, oh yeah, ho-hum, another NDE, sweet. People, and the media certainly, tend to have accepted the superficial myth of the beautiful NDE and stopped asking questions. Well, my thanks to Nancy Evans Bush for these observations from 14 years ago and for sharing her DNDE with the world. If anyone wonders why she had her DNDE, they need only look at her subsequent research and the writings that came out of it. Now, here's a portion of our interview with Nancy on our program of May 16th, 2016. Nancy, you've estimated that perhaps 20% of NDEs can be distressing. Um, that is ranging from a fear of the unknown to a frightening experience of the void to an experience that is truly hellish. Do you suppose these NDEs or all DAs, NDEs for that matter, are individually designed to teach the experiencer about themselves? I certainly prefer that interpretation to the idea that uh, God is just waiting to whale us all for even the most minor transgression. I, I know that traditionally um, these types of experience have been interpreted as being punishment for sin, but it is equally valid to look at them the way the ancients did uh, before the medieval description of hell and the way the, the ancients interpreted them was as challenges. Uh, if you think of, of the, the heroes of ancient adventures, what happens is often a voyage to the underworld where they meet with terrible dragons and monsters and 
weird things that come out of the deeps. And the whole point is to to meet and vanquish these these whether they're physical monsters or or dangers. And then usually the hero would um, be awarded a prize. We've got mm. golden apples. We've got golden fleeces. Um, but there's there is a prize. There's a boon to be won, which the hero then takes back with him into the world because now he has special knowledge and can be helpful to his community. Well, mm. we kept the monsters, we kept the fears, but we forgot about the gift. We've just dropped that completely as a culture. And I would and like to see us get that back. And the gift is, generally speaking, some deep understanding about ourselves. Yes. Well, there's certainly uh, people that come back from NDEs with gifts, some some of prophecy, some of healing, uh, all the things that uh, actually get mentioned in the Bibles as, as possible gifts from the, from the Holy Spirit. Um, you mentioned the ancients, and I immediately thought of Plato's story of the soldier Ur, and he, uh, his experience was that uh, after they crossed a field, they were judged and went into a sort of temporary either heaven or a place of punishment. Um, but it was only temporary. And afterwards, the people that had been rewarded and the people who'd been punished all got together and talked about their experience before they were reincarnated. Do you see any, any validity in that picture of, uh, of what happens when we die? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Uh, as, as deeply as it pains me to have to keep saying this to, to audiences, the, the Christian, the medieval Christian view of hell is the only punishment in any of the world's religions that says the punishment is eternal. Mm. In other traditions, uh, first of all, if we, if we look at uh, the Jewish tradition pre-Christian times, uh, punishment for thousands of years there, there was a sense that the the dead, good and bad, simply went to a place underground, Sheol. Mm. Um, but that wasn't a place of punishment. It was simply, hey, this is where the dead hang out. It was like a warehouse. And the idea of punishment crept in much later. There is a path that... I wanted to ask you about, you know, the Bardo, the book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah. It suggests that we should all be having a, a temporary DNDE when we cross over because they describe a place uh, you, you traverse that has demons and uh, 
temptations and uh, distractions that are going to keep you from going into the light. And uh, and yet most of the people that have NDEs, uh, the 80 percent, seem to go almost immediately into into uh, a good place. Yeah, there is so much about these experiences that we we don't know. Uh, it, it, there there are people that sometimes have difficulty um, with the whole idea of near death experiences because even with the beautiful ones, people don't always describe the same place. Mm. So how can they be going to call it whatever if they're all different? So for some folks, this is a real a real um, roadblock. Mm. How come some people, good people, the saints, um, Teresa of Avila, for one, Joan of Arc, for another, saints have terribly difficult experiences. Why is that if they're good people? Uh, mm. The title of, of my forthcoming book is the, about the Buddha in hell. How can the Buddha be in hell? This, that just makes no sense. So for the idea that there is a kind of sorting place makes logical sense. Uh, on the other hand, what if some of these experiences aren't about an afterlife? What if they're about now? Hmm. I had a guest on one time that described this, uh, her near-death experience as going to a beautiful place with a guide. And she said, I happened to notice, I looked back, we were walking through a field, I think it was a field. And she said, as I look back, I realized that the scene that I was seeing was disappearing behind me. And so I asked my guide about that. And the guide told me that this uh, where what you're perceiving has been created especially for you. Oh, doesn't and, that make sense? I, I thought so. I thought that was really intriguing because of the differences we see in NDEs. The, the whole idea that one size fits all, one place fits all, that there's only a single script and you just stumble into the script and have to follow the same thing. Uh, that does not, that doesn't really fit with what we know about consciousness and individuality and about growth. That's, that's a wonderful way of putting it. So if that's the case, then perhaps it was, it's because it's known in advance that you're, you're going to be going back Perhaps this is a picture of something that you should see uh, before you die rather than something that you would see after you die. Well, I certainly like to think that um, they can be any of these, the good experiences, the, the difficult ones, um, can all be seen as having utility even though it may be hard-won to, uh, 
to to figure out what does this mean, but that it means something for our our conscious living lives now here. How can I how can I keep learning and growing and getting more towards my goal of being the person um, I want to be? I, why do, how can I do that if I have to die to get there? Exactly. So, that, uh, one other thing that, that um, I'm going to forget if I don't say it <laughs> in my mouth. <laughs> that is about that, that sorting room. Um, if people have... Uh, the, the DNDEs take a long time, typically, for people to sort them out because we've been so culturally trained to think of this as hell, punishment, damnation, torment, that people go into a kind of PTSD terror and don't even want to think about them thereby losing the challenge and and losing whatever the gift is. But what about people who have a terrifying near death, close to death? If we don't talk about these things, if we don't really hash out how to, what is the terrifying experience, how does it work, what might it mean? Does it mean you're going to hell? <laughs> Excuse mm. me. Uh, if if the experience happens close to death, there is there is inadequate processing time. Yes. So part of the premise of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, for instance, is to prepare people. If this happens, if you see, if if these are the experiences you have, then here is how to behave. Here is the light to look for. You don't want the little green one. You want the big white one. <laughs> uh, and that seems to me to be such a helpful approach. Yes. I... Uh... I often go in after, as a chaplain in the hospital after the families have left. I often go back into the room and shut the door and, and talk to the soul that I assume might still be there and t- tell them to look for the light. Just to, uh, It's a mini Bardo <laughs> instruction, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you suppose, Nancy, um, if these were individually designed mystical experiences and not to say something deeply theological um, when you have either a DNDE or an NDE. Do you suppose if it were accepted that way that um, so many of the organized religions that just like to reject NDEs out of hand might be more willing to take a look at the importance of the NDE for a personal, uh, as a personal mystical experience? I think they have, that would have the potential to be really helpful. The, the question that comes immediately to mind is for some faith traditions, 
um, they're so locked into the idea that there is only one right way. I, I don't know if, if they could learn enough flexibility to allow the idea that God works in more than one way. Um, I think it would be great if, if they could do that. But there's so much, there's so much material within each congregation. There are often people who've had near death experiences. Oh, and they yeah. sit there silently in the pews, never sharing it with anyone because they're either embarrassed or they think it's contradictory to, uh, to, to what the, the pastor believes. And, uh, they, they think it's satanic because it didn't doesn't quote Jesus the way they expect it would quote Jesus. Right, and yet uh, there was there's a pastor. I in fact I interviewed him a few shows back, who chose to starting with Easter preached five uh, Sunday sermons on near death experience, complete oh, with marvelous. Complete with clips, movie clips that he showed during the service of people oh. talking about their NDEs. I got to go to two of these services. It was out in Arizona, and I and I just happened to be out there for two of those uh, five Sundays, and it was terrific. And and he said afterwards, talking to me, people came up to me and told me stories I would never have heard about yeah. their own NDEs. And, as and soon as some people shared. have the okay to share. Yeah, and when they shared with the, with the um, congregation itself, I think one person was willing to do that, it made such a powerful impression that this was not just some far-off crazy idea, but that people they knew and loved were actually telling them what had happened to them. And, uh, and you know, if that could happen in churches you know, around around the world, churches, synagogues, mosques, etc. What a difference it would make in our perception of uh, the afterlife. Lee, I have been talking, as you know, I have been speaking in churches uh, for now 30-some years about NDEs. I have never yet spoken to a church group where... Somebody did not, at least one person, sometimes three or even more, have come up afterwards. Usually they're crying, saying, I have never been able to tell anybody about this. Mm. So our churches are full of people who have had these kinds of experiences, pleasant ones, scary ones, disturbing ones. But unless they're given permission is is what it often feels like. Yes, this is normal. Yes, God loves you with or without an NDE. Yes, the fact that you've had a frightening experience does not mean that God has thrown you out. It just means you've got some work to do. Yes. It's amazingly powerful. Now, I'd plan to end today's look at the question of evil with another DNDE, but instead I think this positive NDE from a child who died under the most evil of earthly circumstances might help reposition our minds 
back to evil on earth, where we are empowered to deal with it ourselves. The fact is, when we fix the evil done on earth, we will be fixing any elements evil, any elements of evil that vibrate through to the other side. For now, let this NDE I'm about to read suggest that this world's evil is not something we should run from, but something we can and must confront and overcome. As we overcome the evil we do on earth, we overcome the evil inflicted on ourselves from the other side as well. So this NDE report comes from the files of Ions. It begins, When I was three and a half years old, my father, in a blind, drunken rage, raped and sodomized and beat me to death deep in the middle of the night, waking me from that boundless sea of sleep, all small children sleep. At the most extreme outpost of pain, when everything physical is the, in the world was only a manifestation of that pain, I cried out to God, and in that moment, I was torn from life. As I died, I felt myself raised up by angels, angels in robes of many colors. I did not know where they were taking me as, I, as they flew, carrying me up higher and higher in the sky. Around us was a great gray light, open emptiness that seemed to go on forever. Finally, after what seemed like an extraordinarily long time, we reached a place where the emptiness gave way to form, and the form took the shape of huge, cloud-like masses on which other angels seemed to be walking, although they too floated through the air. Those angels carrying me laid me at the feet of a beautiful female angel whose radiating love was more powerful than any of those around her. I lay at her feet, clinging to them in hope of salvation. She said to me in a voice whose sweetness and tone are unknown here on earth, tell me your story. I said to her, not in spoken words, but in the spoken thoughts that serve there in their stead, I will, but now I need to rest. I got the distinct feeling that they had called me over to learn about evil, that they had no understanding of it, of how powerful a force it is on earth. Yet I felt in that moment more exhausted and drained than I can describe. I had not yet forgotten in my soul the agony of my, bo- my body had gone through in its death. My spirit had no energy even to answer this loving lady, and I felt I am too little to do this. It was after this that I came into the presence of God, and as I write this, I realized that I must have been summoned into that presence because I had such desperate need of spiritual nourishment. I could not go on without it. In my family, it had been forbidden to believe in God, and though my brother had nearly died a year earlier, and he had an I, he and I had spent much inner time together in an awareness of God, there was no outward reflection of that awareness in our home. I lived and died without knowledge of the existence or possibility of salvation. God, in the manifestation of infinite light, appeared off to my left. All that passed between us was felt rather than spoken. I was engulfed in a form of all-powerful, all-nourishing love that exists nowhere on earth. To attempt to describe it is as futile as describing earth to a man from the moon or color to a blind man. Yet it is a feeling that that, uh, there is Every day, every moment, in every one of us, a feeling that floats in our semi-consciousness, 
as the vague and determined longing for a sense of connection we know we once had. For most of us, we take that memory back only to our childhoods and call it mother. Yet it is a much older mother love than the love of any mother on earth. It is the love that emanates from the original mother, the one our own mothers only learned their letters from. That divine being appeared in the form of a massive column of golden light with the suggestion of a human shape inside. That shape could only be discerned in the way we can see the form of a person in a doorway as the light shines in from behind them. We hear their voice, we know who they are, and because of that we do not care that we cannot see them. I knew he was there rather than seeing him directly, although I did, I did indeed see him. He remained always off to the side, and I knew that I could not look at him directly. I both saw and felt his light, feeling as if I were in a warm bath that completely healed and protected me. The light was of the most beautiful color of gold as can be imagined. It must be that Europeans in the New World who had so long before lost their sense of God were trying to get back to that color in their hunger for gold. We circle our fingers with it in, a marriage, in marriage in the hopes that love will mimic the one we remember. This color is the color of gold in the formless being of light. The love that passed through this light and, and into my being was as big as the universe, and I held it all. I never wanted to leave. Now as I stand in front of the hugeness of the ocean and feel as big as the universe, it is a memory of that love. No conversation passed between us, no words were spoken, but in those infinite moments I acquired the knowledge that allowed me to go back to earth to complete my life. I put these things into words now, yet they did not have this form then. I learned how to live with my murderer for another 15 years by learning what I could from him and leaving the rest. I learned that the most important phenomena in the universe, universe are love, truth, and the quest for knowledge. I received a clear sense of my purpose in life and how I must achieve it. I was given the gift of foreseeing things before they happen and the ability to visualize events, images, and forms, and then bring them into being. After this infinite moment had passed, there began a battle for my life between the angels in heaven and the doctors on earth. Every time the doctors pounded on my chest, my spirit was sucked into my body for a split second, only to be pulled back again by the angels who were not ready to let me go. They held me by my feet, struggling to keep me from coming back, as if trying to pull me out of a deep pit. They fought such a battle with every ounce of their strength as I could not believe. Finally, the doctors pounded one last time. I heard an angel say, they're stronger than we are, and I was sucked back into my body sat up, screamed, and passed out. To this day, I have the feeling that I needed to go back, that there was something more I was meant to do before returning. That feeling of incompleteness keeps me half in the other world all the time, with reluctant feet on the surface of an all-too-real earth. And here ends the account of that NDE. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear this show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE Radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, 
where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio Library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.